Uh, this morning we are studying the book of Haggai, journeying from verse 1 through verse 15. Now, not much love is given to minor prophets. It's the last 12 books of the Bible. Not much love is given to them, not much thought is given to them. Probably the most familiar book in that grouping of 12 is Malachi, and really we only talk about it when we want people to give money or not get divorced, and that's just kind of, that's a real shame. But in terms of Haggai, people skip it. Man, if your pages get stuck together, you skip Haggai because it's only two chapters long. And so especially overlooked and, and really not much attention is paid to it. Now, one of the things that Haggai provides us that we don't see in some of the other books of the Old Testament is very specific dating, very specific dating. You'll notice there are four addresses by the prophet, and they all come in on a particular date. So the entirety of the book of Haggai takes place in the year B.C. 520, and it takes about three and a half months from the first address by the prophet to the final address of the prophet. And so it is an incredibly terse book. It's just packed full of information, and it is so incredibly good for our hearts this morning. You see, Haggai finds a group of people who have, who have returned from exile, and so in, um, in, in 538, Cyrus made an edict, and he allowed for the Jews to return to the land to resume building of the temple, to go and to repair it and to restore it. And Haggai picks up 18 years later. So 18 years later, they're still there, they're still in the land, and what we find is, is that there's no limit to what apathy and procrastination can't do when they're met together, right? And so there's no limit to what they can't do when apathy finds itself being in bed with procrastination. And this is where Haggai moves and directly addresses this. Look at how he opens this up. He says, In the second year of Darius, the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to two guys, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And so what we find is that on August 29th of the year 520 B.C., Haggai has this message. And he delivers the message initially to two men. And so there's the guy who is the governor over Judah, and there's the guy who's the high priest. And so these guys are in conjunction making decisions that are impacting the people that live, the remnant who have returned, this 42,000 plus remnant, 7,000 plus servants, and 200 plus singers who have all returned. And so they're kind of meeting out their instruction. And Haggai comes up and he finds them. And he begins to speak to them. In verse 2, he says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people, speaking of all of them, say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. So imagine this. For 18 years, they've been there. And for 18 years, they haven't been doing what they were supposed to do. Anybody ever start any projects they haven't finished? Right? Right? You start some projects you haven't finished, and so you're like, man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to remodel the front bath. And your wife's like, no, you have half a dozen other projects that you haven't even touched. Oh, I'm going to get them at the same time. I just really need to open up that wall to get a full picture of what's going on. And she's, no, right? And so imagine a project uncompleted for almost two decades. That begins to wear on you. That begins to really, oh, man. Don't, whatever you do, don't look east, y'all. Don't look east. Oh, so they walk by the temple and like, oh, man, I was going to do that next week. Oh, but next week is this week. And I said the same thing last month. 
And so what the prophet says is these people repeatedly say the time has not yet come. For 18 years, they have excelled at this mantra, and they've led everybody down this same path of saying, we're going to get around to that. When the time is right, when, when these things line up just perfectly, we are going to get around because you know the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Now there's something that we have to understand about the incredible significance about the house of the Lord. You see, for them in their understanding, the house of the Lord, God's temple, represents his presence in their lives. It represents the place to offer sacrifice. It is where God's spirit dwelt. And so for them, for two decades, in some sense, they are okay not having this visible representation of God's presence in their lives. Two decades, they're okay with not having a close relationship with God. For two decades, they're okay not being able to offer sacrifices appropriately for their sins. And for two decades, they kept saying, the time has not yet come. For many of us in in our lives, we have a strong sense that God is calling us to something. Maybe today, where you sit or where you listen, you know God is moving in your heart to call you to be on mission for him somewhere other than Greenville, Texas. And for two decades, or for four decades, or for five decades, or maybe in your 70s, and, and when you're in your 20s, you begin to sense the call of God, and you've put it off, and, oh, God, when I get further in my career, oh, God, when my kids get older, oh, God, when I paid off the house, oh, God, when I've lived up to this other commitment, and the word of the Lord finds you this morning, and the mantra of your life has been, the time has not yet come. This is where they are. Man, these people are not so different than we are. There is no limit to what procrastination is unable to do when we allow it to take root in our hearts. See, look what, look what he says. The word of the Lord comes again in verse 4. He says, it is time for you. Is, is there time, though, for you yourselves to dwell in paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? In essence, imagine this. The prophet walks up and he sees boardwalk, right? Like you see, he sees these really nice homes and so they are just decked out. And if you were to tour one of these houses, you'd be like, oh, look at that, look at that, look at that. Man, they have beautiful porcelain uh, tile floors. Oh, look at that granite countertops, surround sound in every room. They've got one of those little tags you wear that when you walk into the room, the lighting changes and the climate drops to make it suit your needs. This is effectively what he's talking about. Their homes are decked out. Their homes are spectacular. And so he says, is there, is there time to make this happen? And then he turns to the temple, and it's lying in ruins on the ground. He says, while well, this house lies in ruins. Man, right at their heart, right at our heart, what we find is the conviction of the Lord coming through this representation of misplaced priority. They gave all the time in the world to building up their homes, to taking care of things they put high value on, things that affected them day in and day out, right? But when it came to those things of eternal, more pressing significance, they looked at it and said, these things aren't as important. We don't necessarily have to be involved with this. It's going to be okay. We're going to get around to this. Ask this question in your minds. How many things have you put off getting around to because there's no pressing need recognized in your life. Most of these tend to be the things of God. It's a great misfortune that this is how we are wired. It is easy for us in some sense to push off things of eternal weight and significance because we're so preoccupied with things of the temporal nature. 
Man, if I don't go to work, I'm gonna get fired. If I don't spend enough time with my wife, she may leave me. If I don't pour into my kids, they may grow up resenting me. So we recognize this pressure, right? And these, these are true things, and so this is real pressure. But it comes over here to our relationship with God, and we say, it's okay, he's forgiving. It's okay, it doesn't matter. It's okay, I don't really have to be that involved. It's okay, I don't have to make that sacrifice. And, and when all these things begin to offload and take care of themselves, I'm totally gonna come around to this. And so some of us look at it and say, when these things resolve, when my life begins to take care of itself and get better, I'm gonna get totally plugged in with church. I'm gonna join my wife and I. We're gonna be all about it. When these things get totally taken care of and begin to be resolved, we're gonna go and we're gonna give a year of our lives and we're gonna live on mission in another country. When these things over here begin to get resolved and, and, and man, when the Botox starts working and, and I look better, then I'm gonna come over here and I'm gonna move to California. Wait, no, hold on, that was still my plan over here. And so we begin to find that it's very easy to allow our temporal things to begin to make its way into the eternal category. But what God says in this, he says, man, you live in these houses that are spectacles to behold, but God's house is ridiculed where it lies. Now, the amazing thing about this is they had been about this process or not been about this process for nearly two decades. And God comes to them in verse 5. He says, consider your ways. So the question he asks in verse 5 and verse 7, consider your ways. What is your heart set upon? This morning, where is your heart? Where have you placed your heart and your priority? If you look at the way you spend your time, the way you spend your money, the ways that things that you do that excite you, what does that say about you? What does that say about you? This is exactly the question he comes in. He says, consider your ways, people of Ridgecrest. Where is your heart before God this morning? What does the way you spend money, the way you spend your time, and the way you use your talents communicate about your relationship with God? What does it say? What does it say? So he comes to these people, and look how he diagnoses their hearts. He says, you've sown much, you've harvested little. You never have enough. You drink, but you never have you fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. He who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. God comes in, he begins to diagnose their situation. In essence, he comes in, he says, I don't know if you've been paying attention, but your lives are terrible. Your lives are not great. Have you noticed this? And so he comes into them and he says, look, you guys are killing yourselves sowing. So you're going out and you're planting seeds all over the place and then when it comes time for harvest, you're going out and you're like, that gum, man, I could have, I could have sworn we planted this field. And then they go over to the next one and, and they say the same thing. Man, I could, have, I could have sworn we planted this over here. He says, you, you, there's no issue in your sowing. There's no issue in your working. But when it comes time to harvest, when it comes time to bring these things in, recognize the stuff's not there. He says, you eat, but you don't have your full. He says, have you noticed when it comes time for mealtime, there's just not enough food to give you that good, oh man, I'm full, feeling in your stomach? Instead, you're like, oh man. Oh, this Atkins, this, 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 oh, this California beach body, <laughs> it's for the birds. Have you noticed that? You just want a big loaf of bread. I mean, have you noticed that? So he goes on and he says, you, you, you eat, but you're never full. You, you drink, but you never have your fill. Have you noticed that your clothes are terrible? 
They're lying in tatters, and man, you're putting on layer after layer after layer, and you're still shivering and cold. Have you not noticed these things? And he says, let's not even talk about money. You go out, and you make money, and you're killing yourself, and you, you load up all the money people will give you. And this is the picture he paints. Imagine that someone paid you in quarters, or they paid you in those dollar coins, right? And you put all those things into a burlap sack that has holes cut in the bottom, and you begin to walk up and down Wesley Street saying, oh, man, I got paid today. And everybody's like, look at all the money falling out of the back of your bag. And you're like, oh, I got paid today. He says, this is the delusion that you're entered into. You don't even recognize how quickly your money's leaving you. Open up your eyes. Consider your heart. Consider your heart. Consider your heart, he goes again in verse 7. Look what he calls them to. Go up to the hills and bring down the wood. They didn't recognize they were in rebellion. They didn't recognize that procrastination had taken hold of their heart, that they had instead enthroned their desires, their wants in their heart. They didn't recognize any of these things. But does God run through this long list of chastisement? Does he line them up and say, up, slap, up, next, slap, up, next, slap? No, he hits them in the middle of this, and he says, go up to the hills, bring the wood, build the house. He shows them exactly what they need to do to return to this right relationship, to return to a way of life that is honoring to him. Go up to the hills, get the wood, bring it down, and build the house. Man, How great would it be if in our lives we had such a simple message from God that in the midst of living like complete and utter schmucks, we find ourselves encountering God and he says, hey dummy, this is what you do. Hey dummy, this is what you do. You know, maybe your relationship with God is more gentle. Mine is not. And so God finds me in the midst of misplaced priorities. He does slap me and then he says, hey dummy, this is what you do. And that's what he calls them to. This idea that there is something concrete that they may do. And look what he tags onto it. It's not just the fact that they're going to enter back into this work. It's the fact that the way God will be viewed when they enter back into this work. He says, go do this thing that I may be glorified, says the Lord. Go do this thing that I may take pleasure in it, says the Lord. We recognize that God waits for these people to glorify him. That God longs to, be, to take pleasure in them and to be glorified in their actions. I think the same thing is true for us today. God longs to take pleasure in the things we do for him. And he longs to be glorified in the things we do for him. So God moves in and he begins to, to tell them, not just is this the diagnosis of your heart, but he begins to explain to them all the reasons why these things have been so. You see, as I said a moment ago, they don't realize, they don't understand how bad things are for them. But what we're about to find is that God has gently, graciously, compassionately, and mercifully frustrated all of their efforts. This is what God has done. God finds them in the midst of misplaced priorities, and he moves in, and he frustrates their efforts. He says, you looked for much in verse 9, and behold, it came to little. In essence, you guys were killing it, working. You poured yourself out, spending so much time and energy, expending and exhausting yourself. And he said, this is what it came to. It came to little. 
And when you brought it home, I blew it away. And why, declares the Lord of hosts, because my house lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Because of your misplaced priorities, because you're not pursuing me and my heart, you're not seeking first my kingdom and my righteousness, everything you did I frustrated. Everything you did I frustrated. And so he continues to kind of describe all the various ways that he has frustrated their efforts. Verse 10, he says, Therefore the heavens above have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. I have called for a drought on the land and the hills and on the grain and the new wine and the oil and on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast and on all their labors. Haggai gives us here this almost this, this summary list of what takes place in Deuteronomy 28 where God moves through in the summary cursings when they don't adhere to covenant faithfulness or address. So in essence, this is what God has said. For nearly two decades, your hearts pursued other things. For nearly two decades, you placed a higher priority on the things of your life than the things of eternal significance. And man, for two decades, he's been trying to get them back. And so they go out, and imagine year one, they go out, and they, they till the soil, and, and, and they're spreading manure, and they're working that into the ground, and they go out, and they're planting seeds, and, and then the time, times for the harvest, and, and they're really worried because it's not been raining very well, and so not sure how that's going to do, and it, it comes up, and then maybe a scorching sun comes down, and it begins to destroy their harvest. Year one, they look at it, and they say, man, that, that is bad luck. That is not good. It is not good for us. Year two comes around and they say, you know what, guys, I, I, I've been checking this out, and I think what we need to do is plant a little bit earlier so the sun's not quite so high when it comes time to harvest. And so they do that, and the same thing happens. Harvest is ruined. They bring it in. Their money's going uh, not as far and not as far and not as far. Over two decades, it would seem from reading Haggai that they never stopped to consider that perhaps God was frustrating their efforts. Perhaps God wasn't saying to them, try harder, do better, but do the right thing right now. You see, God had called them to something very specific. He hadn't called for them just to live their lives and kind of do whatever, but he called for them to do something very specific, and that was to rebuild the temple. And we don't have a temple to rebuild, but each of us have a mission and a purpose to live by. Each of us have this idea that we are to be faithful to the gospel entrusted to us by Jesus Christ. And so the same question comes and it hits us in our hearts. Consider your ways. And when you consider your ways and what your heart is set upon, what does that say about your response to God? When you look at your budget and how you're spending money, what does that say about your response to God? When you consider your relationship with your spouse and how you guys spend your time, what does that say about your response to God? And all of these various things might be asked and addressed of us. But what we find is the important thing isn't looking at it and addressing it and saying, you know what, you're right. We've made some bad decisions. The important thing is not just recognizing you've made bad decisions, but making a change. I tell you, I meet with a number of people who recognize they are completely messing up in their lives. I've had so many times in my own life where I just recognize, man, I really missed that. I really did not see that coming. I didn't handle that well. And at that moment, at that moment, our choices, our options are to 
be momentarily afflicted and give ourselves to that same pursuit or to be fundamentally changed and to give ourselves to pursuing God and his kingdom. Verse 12 says, Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. One of the reasons, quite simply, we don't continue to faithfully serve God is we don't have an accurate understanding of exactly how holy he is. You see, in the midst of this, that prophet comes in, and he begins to explain to them all the ways that God had made it difficult for them to live, to thrive, to succeed in the land. And so they begin to hear, man, I thought we were just terrible farmers. I thought we just really stunk at sewing clothes together. Man, I thought, I thought portion control was just out of, out, of, out of hand. I thought that's what was going on. But the prophet comes in and he says, all these things are frustrating. All these things, all these things are happening because your fundamental disobedience to God. And so when they hear this, their hearts are quickened. They're They are broken. They are humbled. And in so being humbled, they have a right response to God. It says they fear God and they begin to obey God. Look what he says here. Verse 13. It says, Then the messenger of the Lord spoke to the people the Lord's message. I am with you. They're coming back is met with this amazing testimony of God's faithfulness. It's very similar to what he says in, in the book of Deuteronomy in 31.6 where he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. They were in the midst of outward rebellion, complete apathy, which kind of works itself into being practical atheism. If your relationship with God isn't making a practical day-by-day difference in your life, then from what you are engaged in is practical atheism. You're living your life as if God did not exist. You're living your life as if he makes no difference in the eternal things and subsequently in the temporal things for your life. But what they find is in the moment that they come back to God, they're greeted by his presence. Some of you this morning, You've been living in rebellion. You're pursuing your own heart, pursuing your own end, you're pursuing your own goals. And occasionally, when you are quickened, when you think about the sin, you're grieved. But your feeling is God's incredibly disappointed in you, as will everybody around you would be if they knew the truth of what was going on in your heart. So you just stay out. You find yourself on the periphery. You find yourself on the edges. Occasionally you attend church. Occasionally you pray or read your Bible. But there is a fear misplaced in your heart about the receptivity of God at your return. Can I tell you this morning, he hasn't gone anywhere. Hasn't left you. He hasn't forsaken you. 
he has graciously been frustrating your efforts. Those things you're pursuing, he's leaving them empty. He's leaving them completely void because he wants you to find fulfillment in him and not them. This morning, if this is where you've been, if you've been in a pursuit similar to the pursuit that these rem, this remnant who has returned have been in, God calls you and he says, I am still faithful. He beckons you to return. He beckons you to return so that at the moment of your return, you too might hear the message of the Lord. I am with you. Man, if you have not left, if you have remained faithful, but you know some who have, the message we communicate to those who have left isn't stay gone, we're so glad to be rid of you. But we continue to testify to God's faithfulness, to his love for them, and we say, come back, he's still here. We still love you through him. He says, I am with you, declares the Lord. And when God's presence moves in conjunction with their obedience, verse 14 it says, And then the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, he stirred up the spirit of Joshua, and he stirred up the spirit of all the remnant of the people, and they came and worked. Man, this last week, it was awesome. We brought over 24 churches together who had agreed Many more churches than that represented by people who just said, look, my church isn't involved, but I'm going to be. And we did it for four days. And we made a difference in the lives of those we encountered. But I want you to understand something. If we would endeavor to be a people daily submitted to the stirring of our great God in our hearts, those four days are a taste of eternity. Those four days could be the beginning of a movement that knows no end. Those four days can be a small taste of what could be. What he writes here, the Spirit of the Lord caught the leadership and it excited them. The Spirit of the Lord caught the clergy and it excited them. And then the Spirit of the Lord found itself moving and humming within the hearts of the laity, and they were unstoppable. And they were unstoppable. So Haggai goes on to tell us for the next 23 days, they begin to gather supplies, they begin to put these things together. And then at the end, he says, and then they began to work. They came and worked on the house of the Lord their God on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. What would it look like? What would it look like? If today, if the 25th of June, 2017, our hearts were quickened, our wills were broken, and his spirit stirred us up beyond apathy, beyond procrastination, beyond disinterest, beyond animosity, beyond bickering, beyond race, 
beyond economics, beyond time, beyond talent. And we said, God, whatever you call us to, we will do. Wherever you call us to, we will go. And we were a people, not working in our own energies and efforts and doing the hard work, but the wrong work, but doing the right work under the Spirit of God. I can tell you, there would be no end to the expanse of his kingdom. Will you join me? Let me pray. God, this morning I recognize that so many of us, man, we want things nailed down, concrete, tucked away, well-placed, exact. The work of your spirit is according to your will, not our convention of what is right or wrong. The work of your spirit finds us putting our lives in jeopardy, submitting our finances and giving them to you and entrusting our welfare to our king, to our God. In salvation, you own us. You have rescued and redeemed us from a life living in dominion of sin to a life under the dominion of our great God and King. So God, I pray this morning that you would be moving in the strongholds of the hearts of these people. You would be eradicating them, wiping them out. That we would all stand and sing praises to your name. That we would all submit our lives to you eternally. That each day we would wake up looking for how we might serve you. That each moment we would look what breath we might save for you. That each person we pass, a person we might invest in. God, we do this not necessarily because we think that we can make a difference, but because you have made a difference in us. You found us broken and alone, wallowing in sin and self-pity. Wallowing in rebellion, you rescued us. You sent your son Jesus to die for us. You called us from darkness to light, from death to life. He sits high and exalted. We worship him. So God, would you call us to repentance? Would you call us to turn away from our own pursuits and to turn towards Jesus? Would you call us from sin and death to life eternal? Father, we praise you. We sing glory to your name. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.